reading of God's word, and let's turn together to Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4. I've already offered my apologies to Joe, and I go ahead and offer to the rest of the high schoolers that have already been with me twice today in the Bible. Um, this will only take about as long as it took the last two classes we had today, so I'm joking. Thank you, Joe, for laughing. Ephesians chapter 4 tonight, we'll begin reading at verse number 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Let's pray again. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and the power that it has, Lord, to touch our hearts, to convict us of our sin, and Lord, to change our lives. And I pray now that your Holy Spirit would do just that. If there's anyone among us that doesn't know you as their Savior, that the Holy Spirit would convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment. And Lord, that we would join with him tonight in proclaiming the truth. And Lord, we also pray that for believers, that your Holy Spirit would show us Jesus tonight as we look at the scriptures. Show us where we fail him, where we fail to be like him. And shape us to be more in the image of your Son. Lord, I pray that you would make us a more Christ-like church, a more loving church, a church that can be a light that is shining brightly in our community and in our world around us. Pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us now, hide me behind the cross. Pray that your words would be in my mouth and those would be the only ones that I would speak tonight. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4 tonight. Of course, the book of Ephesians was written along with the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon at the same time. Paul is writing from prison. He sends these letters by one uh, Epaphroditus, I believe was the name of the man who was the messenger to carry these letters to the churches. Apparently, he also wrote one to Laodicea, although it is not inspired scripture. He does refer to that at the end of Ephesians here. He was having to address some issues that were in each one of these churches. And apparently, they were having some problems with how they treated one another in these congregations. And so in each one of them, he deals with these subjects. And specifically in Philemon, he, it, is, it is actually a personal letter to one of the members of the congregation at Colossae telling him about a problem with another church member that had been his slave and um, that his slave was returning to him. He had gotten saved. Paul had led him to the Lord, discipled him, was sending him back to make things right with Philemon. And Philemon is instructed to give an illustration to the church at Colossae on how to receive an offending brother. The letter is read. The letter to the church at Colossae would be read publicly. And of course, the way Paul wrote the letter to Philemon, it appears he was expected to read it out loud when the church got together for the reading of the letters and so he reads it and gets to give an illustration on how to forgive someone, but that is uh, another sermon altogether. 
But they receive these letters. Epaphroditus takes the letter to Ephesus at the same time. And, of course, to Laodicea, and they're instructed to read each other's letters. And something that is common in these three letters that appears to have been an issue in both of these churches was some difficulty with people getting along with one another. And, of course, nothing has changed because we're still people in church and people have trouble getting along with people sometimes. If you don't believe me, just join me tomorrow morning in junior high class and you can see that that is true. Um, or go upstairs this evening to Master Clubs, and whereas we have some really good kids at this church, every once in a while they have trouble getting along with each other. And that's no surprise because we adults have trouble getting along with each other sometimes as well. And so Paul is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving them some instruction. You could tear down the parts that we have read, the verses we've read tonight, seeing, first of all, the grace that Paul is concerned that they, that Christians minister grace to one another, that we receive grace from one another by our conversation in verse 29, by the, the, our lifestyle, by our, uh, by our communication itself, by the way we talk to one another. And then we see that in this context of how we treat one another, he talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. So we see if we do things wrong in how we communicate and treat one another in the church, we can bring grief to the Holy Spirit. Um, then next, we see that if we're going to do things right, we have to follow the example of God the Father. Uh, this is in chapter 5 and verse 1. Be followers of God as dear children. And of course, we have to start acting like Jesus and verse 2 um, as Christ also we need to start following his example so if we want to be believers who minister grace to others if we want to be believers who don't grieve the Holy Spirit we're going to have to figure these things out he's talking about here in how to follow the Father and how to start acting like Jesus so let's tear this down for just a few minutes and what we're going to do is we're going to um, look at these things that he says need to be gotten rid of, or we might say things that needed to be repented of, and then we're going to put most of our focus this evening on these things that the Holy Spirit says we need to be doing. First of all, we see here in chapter 4 <clears throat> and uh, verse number uh, 29, he says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of our mouths. The church at Ephesus apparently had some problems with how people talked about one another. And so he said, I want you to get rid of corrupt communication. Of course, these corrupt communications, I love what the word corrupt there literally means rotten. He said, quit your rotten talking about one another. Your bad talking your, or worthless could be another way of defining that word corrupt because something that is rotten has become um, worthless. I've got some pumpkins on my desk over, um, three of us teachers share a, a classroom next door, and my wife and I put some pumpkins on the desk for fall, and um, I went in there this morning, and I looked at the desk, and these two beautiful pumpkins, real pumpkins, were sitting there, and I thought they would last longer. My wife was planning on before long coming to the office and taking them home and cooking them, making uh, pumpkin pie out of them, but I failed to tell her today that's not going to be happening <clears throat> because I sat down behind the desk this morning first thing and I looked at the pumpkin and no longer was it this big beautiful tall orange pumpkin it was leaning and it had the strangest shape to it 
And so I looked up at the student sitting closest, and I said, does anything look funny about this pumpkin? And she said, yes, sir, that's not shaped like it was yesterday. Of course, now that I think about it, we may be ha go back to class tomorrow with an, uh, an exploded pumpkin, but that'll be fun to clean up. But it's becoming rotten. We're not going to be able to cook it and eat it. Why? It's rotten. He said, get rid of that which is worthless, that which is that communication out of your mouth. It is rotten. He says, um, later on, he says, put away some things. If we look over at verse number 31, let all bitterness he goes on to say, be put away. Let harshness and hatred, of course, this is a harshness. Bitterness is a harshness, a hatred that we develop towards other people that come as a result of unforgiveness. I'll never forget the first time I was really confronted about bitterness toward a friend. This friend had walked away from the faith. She had left home, um, turned away from her parents, the faith. I had become bitter at her because we had been really good friends and um, I was in another friend's house one day, and all the teenagers got up and left the room except for me. And I was sitting there at the dining table, and my friend's mom looked across the table, and she said, are you bitter at so-and-so? I said, oh, no, ma'am, I'm not. She said, yes, you are. I said, no, I'm not. She said, no, ma'am, I was trying to be respectful, but I knew I was not bitter. I wouldn't be bitter towards somebody. She said, Aaron, you have nothing good to say about them anymore. I got quiet too. A few minutes later, we were in the living room on our knees in front of the coffee table. And she said, you need to pray and tell God that you forgive her. And I prayed and told the Lord I forgive her. And he said, you know, Job, when Job's three friends had falsely accused him and had, he had had problems with his, free, his three friends, God turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. She said, I want you to pray for this friend now. Ask God to bless her. I prayed and I said, um, God, you know, would you just work in her heart and bless her to get right with you and bless her to, and I started praying for all these things that I thought needed to happen. She said, you just said, God, I want you to bless her. She said, you didn't actually ask God to bless her. Mm. I realized at that moment I hadn't really forgiven. So again, I went through the process, God, I forgive her in my heart for taking up this offense of what she's done to you, for, for her cutting off our friendship. Lord, I forgive her. God, will you bless her? No stipulations, no instructions to God on what that blessing was to look like. Just, Lord, would you bless her? I realized I was free. It was funny. I didn't just enjoy talking bad about her anymore. Why? Because that bitterness had been washed away. God had done a change in my heart. He said, put away bitterness. He said, put away wrath. Let wrath be put away from you. Let rage, we might would use the word today, be put away from you. Then he says, and anger. Put away anger. You say, well, if you back up a few verses, and actually in verse 26, he says, be angry and sin not. And in this case, he's talking about the natural thing that we have called anger. Somebody walks up, slaps you in the face. Naturally, we're going to get upset about it. It's going to swell up some anger inside of us. But he, notice he said, be angry and sin not. 
when someone does something to us and we have that moment of swelling anger come inside us, don't lose your temper about it is what he's saying. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. In other words, you get mad at somebody, deal with it. Deal with it right away. Don't put it off. Don't wait because then that just grows and grows. So put away anger. And then he said, uses this word clamor. Clamor, that's an interesting word. I looked it up and then I looked it up again because I didn't like the definition I saw in the concordance the first time. I looked at three concordances and they all said basically the same thing. Screaming, hollering, harsh words. Ouch. Any of us ever lose our temper? You don't have to raise your hand for that one. Any of us ever raise our voice when we lose our temper? We don't have to raise our hands for that one. He says, let it be put away from you. Put it away from you. And then he says something else. He said, um, and evil speaking. Evil speaking is saying bad things about someone to tear them down, slandering someone. He says, put it away from you. And then he says, with all malice. Malice, ill will towards others. He said, put these things away. So put away bitterness, put away wrath, put away anger, put away clamor, put away evil speaking, put away malice, put all these things away. And he had said at the very beginning, just don't let corrupt communications even come out of your mouth. So what are we supposed to do? Let's focus on that for a few minutes tonight. Look down at verse number, uh, look back up actually at verse number 29. And we see the first on this list in verse 29. He says, let no corrupt com communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. That which is good to the use of edification, to the use of edifying. The things that you and I say to our brothers and sisters in Christ should only be words that can build them up. Only be words that build them up. Romans chapter 14 and verse 19 says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Yes, we may have to give correction sometimes. Today I had to give some correction to some fellow Christians. And when I gave that correction, though, it was for the purpose of building them up. Helping them say, hey, look, here's a scripture that you violated. You need to fix this. And here's how we're going to fix it and come along beside them, helping them. But the whole purpose is for building them up, not to tear them down. He said, things wherewith one may edify. Romans chapter 15, just the next chapter over in Romans, starting at verse 6. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. You see, if we're focused on ourselves and pleasing ourselves and getting our way in the church, we're going to have trouble bearing the infirmities of others. We're going to have trouble edifying others. He goes on to say, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself. I mean, if anybody has ever lived on this earth who had the right to please themselves, it would be Jesus Christ. He was perfect. He was sinless. I mean, what do we tell ourselves sometimes? I, when we indulge, we say, I deserve this. And that's something our society tells us all the time. Go on social media. What does it say? Go to the spa. You deserve this. Buy yourself a Christmas present. I didn't know that was a thing. I've known people in the last couple of years that have started buying themselves extravagant Christmas presents. Uh, you deserve it. Um, 
And sometimes we get so focused on ourselves, we're not able to edify one another. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Look at verse 5. Now the God of patience and consolation grant to you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. You say, how on earth am I supposed to be like-minded with other Christians when they're all messed up? Because I'm not messed up. Um, my wife has this saying that she reminds me of so sweetly every once in a while. She says, we're all strange in our own special way. In other words, we can put up with other Christians that are irritating because we're irritating too. We're all weird. Every human being's weird in our own special way. Look what, how he started that verse, though. Verse 5. Now the God of patience and consolation grants you. How are you going to be able to put up with other Christians? He said, because the God of patience is going to enable you to do this. The only way you and I can be like-minded with one another is if we have the patience of God. We need way more than the patience of Job. People will talk about, somebody brag about their patience. Oh, that brother has the patience of Job. That sister has the patience of Job. But do they have the patience of God? If we have the patience of God, we will be able to be like-minded toward one another. Verse number six, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, here was a church with problems. Wow, here was a church that had a lot of trouble getting along. In fact, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul has to deal with the fact that this church was split over four different preachers that different ones liked. I say four preachers, four people, I'll say, that each one liked. And he pointed out that they were all wrong which is really weird because of who the fourth one was. Some said, I am of Paul. I like Brother Paul. He was the founder of the church. I like him. He's the one who's preaching. I like, I'm going to stick with him. He's my preferred preacher. And others in the church would say, well, I like Onesiphorus. As Onesiphorus was a man who, Aquila, uh, sorry, Aquila and Priscilla, um, fellow laborers of Paul, had discipled and trained in the ministry. He apparently had gone there and pastored the church at one point, and some of them said, we prefer him. We're on Team Onesiphorus. And then, um, if that wasn't enough, some of them said, we like Cephas, which that was Peter. We prefer Peter's preaching. When Laura and I got married, um, she asked about a, a certain conference we were going to, and she's like, well, why aren't these family in the churches going? I said, oh, well, they don't like one of the preachers. I didn't think anything about it. That's just what came out of my mouth. And she said, well, why don't they like him? I said, they think he hollers too much, and they think it's inappropriate for a preacher to get too worked up when he preaches. Oh, okay, I've never thought about that before. Later, there was something else, and they're like, well, why don't so-and-so and so-and-so go to that? Oh, well, they don't like such-and-such -such preacher. Well, why don't they like him? Oh, because he, whatever it was. And she said, you know, that is just the strangest thing I've ever heard in my life. She said, when I grew up, if, if it was a preacher, a man of God, they taught good things. You just went and listened to him. You didn't criticize whether he hollered or, you know, whether he had a lisp or, you know, whatever it was. You didn't, like, why would you so hyper-criticize someone else and their styles or whatever? And um, I just had to chuckle to myself. It's nothing new. I mean, Paul was addressing it in the church at Corinth. But then he said there was a fourth one. Some people in the church smugly said, well, I am of Christ. 
I don't like any of those fellows. I only follow Jesus. And boy, Paul lit right into them. He said, is Christ divided? Some of you are on team Jesus. Some of you on team Peter. Some of you on team Paul. Some of you, good heavens, it's a mess over there. And so as he's addressing this, he tells them in chapter 14 and verse 6, how is it then, brethren? We see the level to which their division went in this church. He said, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm. Everybody wanted to sing a special when they got to church. That would be funny at this church if everybody showed up and wanted to sing a special on Sunday morning. Brother Zach would just have a heart attack. He says, hath a doctrine. Everybody had something they wanted to teach. They were just lined up waiting their turn to get to preach. Hath a tongue. Hath a revelation. They liked tongues a lot at the church at Corinth. And so everybody wanted to speak in tongues. Everybody wanted to give a revelation. Everybody wanted to give an interpretation of the tongues. And Paul comes to the conclusion of the whole matter. He said, let all things be done unto edifying. You shouldn't come to church saying, I'm singing the special. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. But he said, you should come to church with the heart to want to edify others, build up others. So, first of all, we should be speaking edifying words. Number two, if we look down at verse number 32, he says, And be ye kind. Be kind. And if you look at how this word is used in the New Testament, you realize he's talking about a goodness and a graciousness towards others. The first time I think of in Scripture, I know kindness was used before this, but one that I often think of when I think about Christian kindness, Proverbs 31 and verse 26. She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. He says the virtuous woman, the godly woman, is a woman whose mouth is controlled by kindness. A few years ago, I was preparing to preach a Mother's Day message, and I, Laura asked me what I was preparing, and I said, I don't know, I'm just wrestling with something, and I quoted this verse. We were driving down the road, I quoted the verse, and I made that statement, you know, the message would be about what controls the mouth of a godly woman is kindness. And Laura said, honey, all you need to do is read that verse, make that statement, and give the altar call. Because that right there is convicting. But it's not just true of a godly woman, it's true of every one of us. That our mouth should be controlled by kindness. Romans chapter 2 if you look at verse number one, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. Look down in verse number four. He says, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering? He's talking about judging one another, and he says, do you despise the goodness and forbearance and longsuffering that God has shown you? He said, knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. This word goodness is the same one that's translated kindness in Ephesians chapter 4. He says God was good to you. God was kind to you. And that kindness of God is what led you to repentance. Folks, we need to understand the power of kindness in dealing with someone who is wayward, whether it is a child that is wayward, whether it's a, a brother or sister in Christ that is backslidden, we need to understand the importance of kindness in dealing with them. Our natural tendency is harshness. But David himself said, thy gentleness hath made me great. For the goodness of God is what led you and I to come to Christ. We need to show the goodness, the kindness of God to others. 
1 Peter chapter 2, he's dealing with uh, believers who are about to undergo a severe persecution under Nero. Nero was that insane uh, ruler of the Roman Empire, you know, the guy who fiddled while Rome burned. Some historians claim that he himself got his soldiers to light those fires so he could burn down the old city of Rome and blame the Christians on the burning. Whether or not he actually conspired in that, he used the burnings for exactly that thing as an opportunity to persecute, uh, persecute Christians. Paul had been recently beheaded. The church as a whole is beginning to um, go into this severe persecution. And as they get ready, Peter writes them a letter encouraging them. He himself is about to lose his own life in this persecution. He writes them a letter and he gives them some instruction. And in chapter 2, starting at verse 1, he says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice. Apparently these Christians had trouble getting along as well. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. There's that word again. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. They needed to be growing spiritually to be ready for this time of persecution. And so he tells them, in order for you to grow spiritually and be able to really get in the word of God, he said, you're going to have to get rid of some things. You're going to have to let go, lay aside your malice and guile and envy and evil speakings that you've got toward one another. He said, when you put aside those things, you're going to start desiring the sincere milk of the word. When Samuel was born the other day, you know, we had been prepared for all kinds of things as it was very likely that he would be born with and diagnosed with Down syndrome. There were a lot of things we were prepared for as we went into labor and delivery. But one of the things that I had heard talk about was difficulty eating for a Down syndrome child. And so he's born and I go over and I'm watching as the NICU nurses are working on him very quickly. Um, I mean, just right after he's born, they're instantly checking things, listening to his heart, making sure he's okay. And I noticed right away, he starts turning his head to the side and he starts opening his mouth like a little baby bird, just so wide. And I watched and I ran over to the bed and I whispered to Laura, I said, he's trying to find the milk. I was excited. You know, we were told Down syndrome babies, they, they may have trouble. They may not be able to nurse. They may have trouble using a bottle. It could be really difficult for him. He came out looking for the food. That's what Peter's talking about. Like a newborn baby. I mean, when that baby tastes the food, he wants it. And he wants more of it. And he wants more of it. And um, ask these mothers with newborns around here and ask their husbands, um, who none of them are sleeping right now, um, as these things are happening, what's the deal? The baby wants to eat all night long. It desires the sincere milk. And he said, I want you to be like little babies desiring the milk. Why would you know to desire the milk? He says in verse 3, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Here's the same word for kindness. If you have already tasted the goodness of God, he said, you should desire the milk of the word. What is wrong in so much of Christianity today is so many of us have forgotten that the Lord is gracious. We have forgotten what God has delivered us from. We have forgotten who we really are. 
who we were before he saved us. And if we would lay aside these things, we would start desiring the milk of the word. If we would remember the kindness and goodness of God. I've been, I was introduced to a song not too long ago. And recently I've been listening to it a lot. The words go like this. I'm trying to be like Jesus. I'm following in his ways. I'm trying to love as he did in all that I do and say. At times I am tempted to make a wrong choice, but I try to listen as his still small voice whispers, love one another as Jesus loved you. Try to show kindness in all that you do. Be gentle and loving in deed and in thought, for these are the things Jesus taught. I'm trying to love my neighbor. I'm learning to serve my friends. I watch for the day of gladness when Jesus will come again. I try to remember the lessons he taught then the Holy Spirit enters into my thoughts saying, love one another as Jesus loves you. Try to show kindness in all that you do. Be gentle and loving in deed and in thought, for these are the things Jesus taught. Number three, he says, be tender-hearted. Be tender-hearted. I mean, just take that word apart, tender-hearted. Heart, tender Sometimes we have to tenderize our heart. Sometimes we have to go through difficult things that, so that our heart will be tenderized. That we find this word one other place in the New Testament, and that's in 1 Peter chapter 3, again writing to these believers who are going into the persecution of Nero. 1 Peter 3, starting in verse number 8, he says, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be Pitiful, and this word pitiful is the same word translated tenderhearted in Ephesians chapter 4. Be tenderhearted, be pitiful toward one another, show pity to each other, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Be tenderhearted. So first he said, speak edifying words. Number two, be kind. Number two, be tenderhearted. Number, sorry, number three, be tenderhearted. Number four, forgive. Forgive. Now we all know what forgive means, but something that's interesting in this word here, the Greek word translated forgive is a verb that is a continuous action verb, meaning forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. It's one of those words that when it's said once, it means do it over and over and over. Keep forgiving. Kindness and tenderheartedness, these are things we should be. Be kind. Be tenderhearted. This is something we should be doing. It should be a continual part of our life. We should just expect as human beings that we're going to have to forgive others and we're going to have to do it often. Did not Jesus tell Peter, you forgive 70 times 7? What was Jesus saying? Do it over and over and over and over. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10, he talks about this. He says, and put on the new man. He's been talking about the fact that they have a new man. They need to take off the old, put on the new. He said, put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And then he goes on, if you look at verse 12, put on therefore as elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. That means putting up with each other. You know, sometimes you just got to put up with people. You can only do that if you love the Lord, though, and if you love them. Forbearing one another and forgiving 
one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. We have a tendency to put stipulations on our forgiveness. I'll forgive them if they apologize. I'll forgive them if, I'll forgive them if. That's not true forgiveness. Jesus was hanging on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He said, God, they're totally unaware of their sin. They're totally unaware of what they're doing at the foot of the cross. But Father, forgive them. And if we're going to have the heart of God, if we're not going to grieve the Holy Spirit, if we're going to minister grace to other believers, we're going to have to forgive. It is a choice. It is a step of obedience. But it is well worth it to choose forgiveness. Number five, he says, walk in love. If you look down at verse number two of chapter five, and walk in love. Love. How do we follow God? We walk in love. Walk in love. That sounds difficult. It is. John 13, Jesus tells his disciples as he's preparing to be crucified, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Boy, that's difficult. Love like Jesus. That ye also love one another. The next verse, verse 35, he says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. If ye have love one for another. Wait, 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 wait. I thought people would know I was God's disciple if I loved Jesus. That's not what he said. I thought that people would know that I'm a follower of God, that if I'm a great soul winner, if I work on the bus route, if I teach Sunday school, if I show up and I help with RU on Friday nights, if I'm in church every Sunday, if I'm in church Wednesday night, if I'm there when somebody goes soul winning, I go out all the time. These are the things that's going to let the world know that I love Jesus. I give to missions. I do all these things. That's not what Jesus said here. He said the way people will know that we are truly disciples is by how we treat each other. The world will not know us by our soul winning zeal. I mean, come on, the Jehovah's Witness are better at that than we are. They're not going to know by how many buses we run, by how many standards we have. They know by how, how well we love each other. And if we fail as a church at loving each other, we fail at one of the most basic commandments of all. Love one another. Go two chapters over in John chapter 15, and at verse 9, he begins to say, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. He goes on about the commandments, you follow my commandments, um, then you, you, that's how you're showing your love for me. But he brings it down in verse 12, John 15, 12, telling us exactly, specifically what commandment he's talking about that proves so much that we love him. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, greater love hath no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friend. You say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to die for my friends. Well, that may be true. Good for you. But Jesus did die for his friends. And if we say that, do we really mean it? And do we not realize that dying for our friends can mean putting ourselves aside sometimes? Choosing to serve others when it's sacrificial to us? Putting something that someone else needs about our own needs? 
It's those little things when you know a friend needs some groceries and you show up at the house with a load of groceries for them. These are the things that show that you truly love God, that you truly love the brethren when you're able to lose some sleep praying for a friend. When you're willing to serve a friend at great sacrifice to yourself. You say, I can't do this. I am incapable. Yes, we are, but there's hope because Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Those are the exact words. That's a a direct quote from Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. The love of God is shed abroad in my heart. What does that mean? That means on the day when you have a friend, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, maybe it's your own spouse, and you go, God, I can't love them today. Then you pray, God, I can't love them. Would you love them through me? God, I've lost my patience. Love them through me. I always tell young men that are praying about marriage or when my wife and I are doing premarital counseling with a couple, I always take the young man aside and I tell him there are going to be, right now this seems impossible, but one day you're going to believe me. There are going to be days where you're going to wake up and you're going to be incapable of loving her. Not necessarily to her fault. But you will wake up and you will be grumpy and you will get up on the wrong side of the bed and you will not be capable of loving her that day. So on that day is when you have to say, Lord, would you love her the way she needs through me? Just make me a channel of your love. God, I can't love them. You love them through me. We're capable of this because Galatians 5 and verse 22, when it gives the fruit of the Spirit, he says the fruit of the Spirit is, what's the first one? Say it out loud. Love. If you are incapable of loving a brother or sister in Christ, you have severe bitterness that needs to be dealt with or you're not saved. Because the first thing the Holy Spirit starts doing is producing love, love for God the Father, love for Jesus, love for his people. And so we need the work of the Holy Spirit to do this. Down in verse number 25 of Galatians 5, he says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. What's his whole point? If we're walking in the Spirit, we're going to be walking in his love, and we're going to be treating each other right. You say, that sounds so simple. It is. It's really that simple. Lord, start loving others through me. We start doing what 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. Charity suffereth long, is kind, envieth not, vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Look down at verse 7, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. It beareth, love, charity beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things. Oh boy, endureth all things. Any of us ever have trouble enduring with a brother or sister in Christ? It just takes so long to see some maturity And we get impatient, and we just need to endure. Charity never faileth. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he concludes his second letter to the church at Corinth. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect or be complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the love and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Galatians 5.13, for brethren, ye have not been called into liberty. Sorry, you have been called into liberty. Only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. 
Philippians chapter 2, um, if there be any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, be of one accord of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better themselves. Not, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You say, how can I do that? You've got to have the mind of Christ. That's what I'm talking about, being more like Jesus. We start acting like Jesus. We lower ourselves. We humble ourselves. We put others first. We'll be able to fulfill these instructions. Philippians chapter 2, the church at Philippi, he tells them in 2.14, do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in this world. To the church at Colossae, and above all these things, put on charity. In 1 Thessalonians, he tells the church at Thessalonica, apparently they were, I mean, all these churches in the New Testament were having problems. 1 Thessalonians, he tells them how to treat their pastor and how to treat fellow members. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very, very highly in love. He said, know them and show respect to them in love for their work's sake. And how do you treat other Christians? He said, be at peace among yourselves. He said, show respect to the pastors and in love for their work's sake. This is all for the benefit of the ministry. He said, and just be at peace among yourselves. In other words, do you ever say it to your kids? Just get along. Just get along. Any of you teenagers ever heard that before? Just get along. You're like, well, how do I? My brother's a jerk. Yeah. Get over it. Deal with it. Something. You quit being a jerk. My, my kids are used to hearing that word around our house. I don't want my kids to grow up to be jerks. So every once in a while, I have to point out to them, you're acting like a jerk. The way you spoke to your sister, that's what a jerk does. Stop. It's just, make a choice. Change the behavior. Live in peace. Be at peace among yourselves. He goes on and he says, warn them that are unruly. Be patient toward all men. Follow things that are good. 1 Peter chapter 4, 8, above all these things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Have intense love for one another. Why? He said, because charity covereth a multitude of sins. He said, how am I going to put up with my brother? He's so irritating. Love. That's the key, the love of Christ. It covers a multitude of sins. And then last of all, verse number six, sorry, point number six here. Give yourself as an offering to God. Back to chapter five and, and verse two. Look what he says. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. And what did Christ do? And hath given himself as an offering and as a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. You ever heard the phrase, your attitude stinks? Well, you know, every person has a certain odor. Some it's a good odor, some it's not so good odor. When Laura and I, before Laura and I got married, my sister-in-laws claimed I had an odor. They said they could smell me coming. They claimed I used too much cologne at that time in my life. I'm not sure why, but um, anyway, they would go to a store and they would smell Tommy Hilfiger cologne. And they'd say, oh, there's Aaron. 
Well, we lived in different cities, different states. It obviously wasn't me every time they smelt that at Walmart. But um, I had a smell. They knew that smell. They knew my odor. But what about our attitude towards others? When somebody walks by us, do they smell Jesus? Or do they, do they smell something unpleasant? Our attitude radiates, hopefully it radiates Christ. How do we do this? How do we become a sacrifice like Jesus? How do we become an offering? Romans chapter 12 tells us exactly how to do that. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He goes on to say, don't be like the world. You need a change of mind. Why? Because the world acts a different way. And in verse number three, most sermons stop right there at talking about dying to self, living as a sacrifice to God. But we got to keep going. Because verse 3 begins, for, for why? For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members of another. How, he's introducing the passage about spiritual gifts. Every one of us have different gifts in the church. How are we going to operate with those gifts and get along with everybody else with the different gifts? How are we going to do that? Well, we need to not think about ourselves higher than we should. We should have the right perspective on ourselves. We should think about ourselves properly. But how are we going to do that? He says in verse number one. He gives us the key to the whole thing. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. He said, I want you to be a living sacrifice. Because something goes up on the altar to die. And when we climb up on the altar, what dies is the flesh. What dies is the old man. What dies is gossip. What dies is envy. What dies is um, malice. What dies is anger. When we climb up on the altar, what dies is our temper. What dies is all of these works of the flesh. And what lives at that point is the new man that lives. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience. The ability to forbear with one another. The ability to put up with brothers and sisters in Christ, even when they get on our nerves. How can we do this when we crawl up on the altar? My favorite professor in seminary a few years ago, my favorite professor said every morning he wakes up, and the first thing he does before he crawls out of bed is he said, I crawl onto the altar. The moment my eyes wake up, and he was a very elderly preacher, he said, By the, when my eyes first wake up, I first thank the Lord for giving me life again today, and then I tell the Lord, God, I'm getting on the altar, and I'm going to live for you today. And he said, then when I get out of bed, I can start walking in the Spirit. Why can he walk in the Spirit? Because he just died to the flesh, and he can be alive to God. My challenge to you tonight is let's all crawl on the altar tonight. Let's start it new right now. 
whatever your problem has been with another brother or sister or irritation, maybe you just in general deal with anger with everybody. Whatever your struggle is, can I challenge you right now, crawl on the altar and let's let go of those things so we can get into the word of God and grow spiritually. Tonight, I commit to you, I'm going to crawl on the altar. And I'm asking you, are you willing to do the same thing? And let's start living for God, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. After all, it is our reasonable service. Jesus died for us. He shed his blood for us. We can live for him. Every head bowed, every eye closed. As we stand together tonight, maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're like, I, I 